you are listening to episode two of season five of Partnerships and Possibilities, a podcast on leadership. In this episode, The Learning Organization. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Diana. And we're going to be talking about leadership in organizations. Leadership in organization happens at all levels and takes many forms. Welcome to our second podcast of our season five. And last time when we were talking, Diana, you and I, uh, towards the end of our podcast, got into a little bit about organizational learning. So we we uh, made a commitment that this next podcast, we would talk more about that idea. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can uh, just set the stage a little bit because... The idea of organizational learning has been around a while. Uh, one of the people that really popularized some of that that thinking, of course, was Peter Senge from MIT, and he has published a lot and been consulting and teaching a lot, but his book, The Fifth Discipline, came out, mm-hmm. what, late 90s maybe? Yeah. Something yeah. like that? Yeah. And I'm always amused. I, I was I think it's this, like the mid '90s. Could be. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was at a conference um, last week where somebody was presenting um, uh, the um, the um, ladder of inference. I was mm-hmm. like, really? I mean, people are just still introducing right. these ideas, but um, things like the ladder of inference, um, how we how we make assumptions. Um, remind me, what were some of the other tools from that? A double loop learning. Right. The idea of double loop learning, thinking about how we how we learn how about we learn. something as well as right. You know the figuring out what's the next step, but also w- what's leading us to think that that should be the next step. So that sort of double loop learning. Thing. Right. Yeah. Of which assumptions are a big yeah. are a big piece, um, and um, I'm trying to think of the other. It uh, doesn't matter anyway. Mm-hmm. Those some of those um, ideas have become very foundational now in terms of the way organizations think about the idea that learning has value that we need to examine the learning process, that we need to um, reinforce organizational learning. So when we think about um, what can we learn from what went wrong, um, how it, the whole idea of post-mortems, right. which... Retrospectives. Retrospectives. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, right. I know right. that, that it's yeah. become yeah. more... more um, but. Some organizations still use more of that postmortem model than right. probably. Well, and the many organizations like to call them lessons learned. Right. Which, of course, leaves them in the past and doesn't move them toward Forward. the future. Right. But, right. But anyway, yeah. Right. But that yeah. whole idea now of organizational learning um, it is certainly more ingrained in our, in our culture, but I wonder how much attention and how much people know about creating the conditions right. by which organizational learning really um, can occur. Yeah. And you and your colleague Willem yeah. um, have been doing some work in that area. 
And so I wonder if we could talk about it from that sure. perspective. Yeah. Uh, and you could share with our listeners some of right. the the thinking about right that that topic. Yeah. Well, yeah, so Willem and I, yes, have been working on some, uh, on ideas about this. We actually have a, a very short and very inexpensive book um, available on leanpub.com, which outlines some of, some of these ideas uh, called A Quick Start Guide to Five Rules for Accelerated Learning. But it, it's, it's, it fascinates me, of course, because I work a lot with people in the software world, which is one kind of knowledge work. Right. And you and I, over the years, and you still, also work with people who do other kinds of knowledge work. Yeah. And more and more, I've been, it's been coming to me that when we talk about people doing knowledge work, what we really are saying is these are people who are doing learning work. That every day, in many aspects of their jobs, they need to be keeping up, learning something new, learning about their customers, learning about how the things they've already delivered, you know, evaluation is a kind of learning, right. like evaluating a program is right. a kind of learning about that program. That there's just, that, that knowledge work implies uh, an intensely learningful, <laughs> if you would I'd coin a term, right. environment. Absolutely. And, and I don't know that we've really thought about it in that way. We've thought about knowledge work as being done by really smart people who already have that knowledge in their heads. And, and just that knowledge work is about working with your head instead of your hands. Right. But I think there is this other aspect to it. Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. And because yeah. because it's, it's as if... It's as if that professional body of knowledge is the floor. Yes. It's like you have to have it to be, even be in the game. Right. But the, to stay in the game, you, you're, you're tackling an issue, a problem, and mm -hmm. you know, you're using that, that right. professional knowledge. And that is in turn creating more knowledge and more knowledge. Right. So right. it's... Right. it's a continual learning process. Well, and as consultants, and particularly you and I, I mean, there, I'm sure other consultants feel this way too, but you and I have always been committed to when we go into an organization, not being the kind of consultants who come in, bring our expertise off, you know, use our expertise, and then take our expertise away. Right when the job is done. Right. We've always been more focused on building the capacity and capabilities, building the capacity organization, the capability of the individuals that we're working with. Right. And that, again, is a focus on how do we help these people learn what they need to learn so that they don't need us anymore. Right. They can do, you know, we'll go we'll do work for somebody else who, who needs us. But... But we want to leave people more capable than we found them. We want to leave organizations with a higher capacity for doing whatever they need to do. Of course. When we go. Of and, um, and so that also is a focus on you know, why we, in particular, would be focused on 
how do we create the conditions where the most learning can happen? Right. Where we can, in other words, where we can bring the most value. Right. Right. That both those things have to happen. And, um, and so, uh, the, the, the work that Willem and I has been, have been doing is, is building on some work that he did focus mostly on, uh, learning languages and, and some other kinds of skills mm -hmm. in that, in that arena and thinking about, well, so how would these, how do these same five rules apply organizationally, mm -hmm. uh, in capacity building, uh, in, in, in those kinds of ways. And there's a, there's a place for kind of classroom professional development, go off to take a workshop, go off to attend a conference or a seminar. Mm -hmm. And, and, and all of these things apply there too. But what's most interesting to me is how do you bring these things to play on a daily basis mm -hmm. that, that just so that the learning is just part of our work. Right. And so, um, one of the, uh, the five, the five rules that we're working on are keep it alive, which means make sure you're paying attention to the fact that, that we're working with humans. Mm -hmm. And that humans have needs and humans have some kinds of predictable responses mm -hmm. and that we need to be alert to those and, and building on those so that we want to make sure that people have, you know, are, are, for instance, extreme programming talks about maintaining a sustainable pace or a 40 hour work week, or it's, it's been phrased a number of different ways. Well, that's a part of keeping it alive. You know, we don't want to burn people out because we know they can't learn then. Mm -hmm. So how do we make sure that, you know, we're, we're giving enough, but not so much that we're depleting ourselves? Or that, I, you know, the phrase that always comes to mind is, you know, people talk about death march software projects. And mm -hmm. I always think, well, how ready are those people who've been through a death march Right. To move to, into the next project. Of course. You know, right. they're dead. Right. Ba uh, you know, metaphorically, right. Sure. right? They don't have a lot to bring, a lot of creativity, a lot of energy right. to bring to that next project. So what can we do to make sure that this project is one that is energizing and engaging and alive for people so that they can still be alive at the end and move into the next be prepared for the next project right so that keep it alive is is the most important it's really the highest value it's are we taking care of the people in such a way that they really can learn you know and that you know we that's where we get into things that are uh you know you, you see many companies now that are creating workspaces that you know where there are uh places to take mental breaks, go play a video game or ping pong or sit in a beanbag chair, you know, all of those kinds of things create a workplace that tends to be more creative and innovative and, you know, helps people be alive. Right? Because people are physically right. and emotionally um, um, not broken. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's the first one and the most important one. Uh, the second one that is also really important, uh, the second rule that we have is called hunt fluency. Mm 
And that really is about focusing on building that capacity, building capability. Are we really getting better at doing the things we need to do? Are we always focused on doing better? So hunting fluency at a team level has to do with are we doing our retrospectives? Are we learning about how we work together and how we might work together better and putting those things into practice and practicing them? Um, at the recent Agile conference, somebody I heard a quote floating around that says, do the thing to learn the thing, right? That the closer you get to, the, to and, and you and I have done this for many years, more opting for, even in our workshops or in our consulting practices, rather than doing simulations to learn doing something real about work. the doing real work to learn about doing the real work in a new and better way. Right. Right? And uh, so this one has seemed really obvious to me. Mm -hmm. And um, and so staying focused on that. Are, how are we enabling people to, to do the real work? Pairing, uh, mentoring, mm -hmm. you know, helping somebody, as opposed to just, learning about how to do the work, which we call, we, we distinguish from fluency, we call that proficiency. Mm -hmm. That's sort of knowledge about, but it's not the hands-on doing it. And the more you can be with the hands-on doing it as opposed to learning about it, the, the faster you build capacity. And then... Well, you yeah. know, it, that's, you know, in the, in the old, I mean, traditionally the way... Of, OD people like us have been trained, um, the emphasis on experiential learning right. as opposed to passive learning right. um, has always been um, right. seen as, you know, right. the way adults in particular, but right. I don't think it's any different for anyone else, right. um, are really going to get get it in their, in their, not only in their, you know, head, but in, head, their, bones. But in their bones, in yeah. their body. Right. Yeah. Well, and people talk about embodied learning. Yeah. And, and you see a lot of that in those kind of set aside classroom training uh, situations or circumstances. But how do we bring that into the workplace? Right. How do we make sure that that's happening in the workplace? And that's the hunting fluency piece. Um, and some of the others are, uh, that, that really support those two, keep it alive and hunt fluency. There are some supports for that. And one is about, uh, we call it start obvious, but it really refers to m keeping things absolutely crystal clear. What is it we're working on? When in through the lens of agile chartering, I think that means making sure that we absolutely, everybody knows what is the purpose of this team. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this work? <clears throat> no ambiguity, no hesitation, no confusion about it. We are all here to do this. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, in a fractal kind of sense, each piece of the work that we're doing toward that is clear. Um, for agile software teams, that might be, you know, being very clear that in this iteration or in this sprint, we are only working on these five stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and it's very obvious which five we're working on and, and, we, and we make a big visible task board so that people know this is the one we're working on now or we watch on a Kanban board how that story moves across. 
it's very obvious what, what we're working. Some people call it, um, are using obvious in the sense of one piece flow. We only work on one thing at a time. Um, and, and it's clear what that is. We, we find ways to make it absolutely clear. Um, you know, I've walked into workplaces, particularly uh, for people who uh, have just been hired, and they'll be hired, they'll show up for their first day of work, and their work is, you know, some kind of work that requires connection to the internet or something, and they're, they're shown their cube, but they haven't been assigned a computer yet. And it's like, well, so what am I supposed to be doing here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, and nobody shows them the bathroom. I mean, there's a whole thing around uh, orientation mm -hmm. that has to do with, let's make it as obvious as possible what the work is. Mm -hmm. We also call that, we call it signal strength. Mm -hmm. um, you know, making sure that our signal to noise ratio is, is mostly signal. Right. And, and, you know, we've right. eliminated as much of the metaphorical static Right. As we possibly can. Um, the next, that, so that's three. The next one is stay focused. And it's about making sure that once we, you know, we got it absolutely clear that this is the story we're working on, what, how do we set conditions that allow us to work on that piece of work in a really focused way? What's the right sequence to approach it? What's the, you know, how, how do we take on as much of that work as feels challenging without it becoming overwhelming. Mm -hmm. How do we stay out of boredom but also out of overwhelm and panic? Mm -hmm. Which really, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, that's what he's talking about when he talks about being in the flow. Right. Working in the flow. You're right. not in boredom. You're not in overwhelm. You're just in that place where you're challenged enough mm -hmm. that it just becomes a flow. And that's that idea of staying focused. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last, the last rule is how do we create physical and kind of climatic environments that support that? And we call that adapt the setting. So it really is, you know, what is the, does the physical setting, do we have a workspace that enables people to keep it alive and and hunt fluency and stay obvious and keep focused and connect with each other. Um, are we setting up our workplaces in that way? Um, and more and more that's happening. Um, some of the high-tech firms are on kind of the cutting edge of that, but so are some other firms in other industries are really looking at um, how do we create these collaborative workspaces that allow for people who need to step away and have some alone time, but also foster time working together and, and creative time together and uh, time to meet with communities. And, you know, there, there's some real very interesting work being done now on, you know, what does it take to really design uh, a workspace that really helps people learn and be innovative and creative. Um, which I think is fascinating and I'm hoping to learn more about. I've just, I've seen a couple of presentations on it and read a little bit. and So I am by no means have any expertise in that area. But what I have seen so far is really fascinating. And it's clear how it supports yeah. the work and supports the learning. 
You know, I, I wonder if the people that are that are doing that kind of research talk to the people that are designing new schools, new classrooms, um, because for the most part, you know, if you yeah. go into a public school these days, you still see what looks like when you and I went to public school. Um, Rows of desks. Rows of desks. Um, you know, some, you know, some teachers are figuring out yeah. that, you know, working in pods, uh, you know, yeah. rearranging the classroom is more effective, but not all of them. Right. And, you know, there's still, uh, even though we are moving more and more, particularly in knowledge work, to and out of the cubicle and into the collaborative space and into the team kind of workspace in many, many schools, the, there is still this um, constructed environment or arranged environment that puts the focus on you've got to learn alone and if you talk to your neighbor, you're not collaborating, you're cheating. You know, there's a lot that a lot of that pressure still exists, as far as I know. From well, I there. think that is changing in, yeah. in some of the you know the school redesign right. stuff uh, that's going on. But but I'll have to look into that and yeah. and find out more. Um, that would mm -hmm. be that would be interesting. Yeah, at the Agile conference last August, I uh, Jorgen Hesselberg and uh, a woman from a design firm in Chicago called I think. Gensler or Gernsler. Hmm. I'll have to find the right name and uh -huh. we'll, we'll put it in the resources for uh -huh. this. Um, they did a joint presentation. He talked about, you know, being the agile champion in his organization and really wanting to set up these spaces that worked for the teams. And she talked about it from the design point of view. So he talked about that. Right. I need to support this collaborative work. And she right. talked about it from design. It was a fascinating. Oh yeah, that yeah. would be, that I would be and very I interesting to hear. I I think it was recorded, but I don't know for sure. So there may the Agile Alliance may have a video on their site at some point that hmm. that has that. Um, but yeah, I mean that's I, I was it was just fascinating the the she the uh, woman from the design firm showed I believe her name was Rochelle, but I'm not. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember, yeah, I don't have sure. the program in front of me, but um, she talked about elements, you know, that of needing different kinds of spaces in the works, you know, supporting different kinds of work in the workspace, and then she showed different examples of of all of the different elements. So one of the things she talked about was that creating a space that uh, is, is a more social space mm -hmm. that may be even open to user groups or the, mm -hmm. or the larger mm -hmm. community to come in and use is really important. And then she showed several examples of how different companies have done that. Mm -hmm. And you know, then she talked about you know, space for uh, sort of more like pairing work or, or work where very small groups of people are working together. And, and setting it up to foster that kind of thing. And, and then showed several different examples of that. Well, it was and really it's, wonderful. And it's, you know, I, I, I'm sure that it's structural, you know, how yeah. it's physically constructed, the color, yeah. the lighting, yeah. 
the seating, whether the seating is kind of straight back chairs or, you know, sort of sprawling out. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of that stuff is absolutely relevant to the kind of mental place right. where people are going right. to go. And, um, you know, I, I, I know that myself. I mean, you know I have a yeah. large open space that's part of my office where I have meetings or that right. kind of stuff. It, I love having lots of color and lots of, you know, there's some toys and, you know, you always right. play with pipe cleaners when you're there. <laughs> but there's a point at which if there's too much stuff, it's distracting. Yeah. And then I have to go in and start culling. Take yeah. this out, take that out, take that out. Just put them away for the time being. Because yeah. if I'm distracted by them... I'm assuming other people are. They might yeah. not be. They might have a little higher or maybe even a little lower threshold. Right. But but that's my kind of creative space. Right. You know? Well, and, and you look at that and you can say, what in this space helps to keep the people in it alive? What helps them to focus on or to, to hunt the fluency, the, the next lear piece of learning they want? What helps them... What what keeps things obvious and keeps the signal strong? What helps you know, them to focus? Right. There's a mobile yes. from the ceiling. There are plants. I mean, it's it's a very, to me, very alive space. Do right. I want all of that stuff in my bedroom? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, adapt the setting is exactly. the rule, right? So what is the the work that needs to go on here and what is the setting that's going to best support that? Right. So, um, so the, that's the thing that Wilm and I are working on. And as I mentioned earlier, you can find out more about it at leanpub.com under... Great. You can, you know, search on my name as an author and, great. and it'll pop up. All righty. Thanks for another great conversation. All right. Please leave your comments on our blog or email us, info at futureworksconsulting.com or find us on Twitter at futurewks. This has been Episode 2 of Season 5 of Partnerships and Possibilities. Thanks for listening.